Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Esther chapter 7. Esther chapter 7. If you're using the church Bibles provided in the seats in front of you, that's page 385. Esther chapter 7. As you're turning there, got to take just a moment to recap where we've been because we are picking up this story, this crazy story of Esther midstream. And man, oh man, it has been a wild ride. Last time we were together, we saw a massive pivot, this seismic reversal in the course of events here in the story of Esther. Let me, let me take just a moment, again, as you're finding your place, Esther chapter 7, to recap where we've been so we can appreciate what happens as it begins to unfold in our text today. At the end of chapter 5 in Esther... Our antagonist, Haman, the Agagite, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, as he's sometimes called here in Esther, builds a gallows for Mordecai the Jew. And we read, literally, these words, in the morning, Haman's going to have Mordecai hanged. In the morning. He's got hours left in the morning. And, and we just so happen to read, as we continue into Esther chapter 6, how the king was struck with a divine case of insomnia that very night. Just probably a coincidence, but the king couldn't sleep on the night before Mordecai was about to be hanged at daybreak. The, the king, in his sleeplessness, just so happens to order, of all the things he could be doing that evening, just so happens to order the book of the chronicles of his reign to be read. And, and of all that he had done up to that point in his reign, all the years of, of events and policies and battles, he just so happens to read how Mordecai, years before had foiled an assassination attempt against the king. Two of the king's officials were out for his blood, and Mordecai caught wind of it, and yet was never rewarded. And it just so happens that right at the very moment the king is reading about this guy who saved his skin and, and was never rewarded, Haman comes into the courts at that very moment asking for that guy's life. The guy who just saved the king... And before Mordecai, excuse me, before Haman could open his mouth to make his bloody request, the king beats him to a, the punch and, long story a little less long, the king ends up ordering Haman to publicly honor the very same guy he was just plotting to kill a few hours before that. Coincidence? I think not. Let's read together now as we've got the context firmly in place. Esther chapter 7, we'll be reading verses 1 to 4. Esther 7, 1 to 4, and for, forgive me, I got, I'm working around a cough drop today. Esther chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Esther. This is the second feast Esther has invited them to. Haman, if you'll remember, has just been parading his mortal enemy through the streets, singing his praises, and he's whisked off to the second banquet. Let's pick up in verse 2. On the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. 
Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted to me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Man, we finally got it. After multiple banquets and some strategic stalling, Esther finally unfolds her request before the, uh, the king. And we can see, look at verse 3 with me now. We can see her request is a twofold request. Esther says, first, king, let my life be spared. And then secondly, she asks for the lives of her people, the Jews, to avoid slaughter. Finally, friends, Esther, the Esther who had hidden her identity all of these years up to this point, is now coming out. She is tethering her fate to the fate of God's people. I want you to listen to how one biblical commentary, the Reformed Expository Commentary, puts it. If her, if Esther's petition was refused by the king and the edict stood, Esther had now publicly added her own name to the list of those marked for slaughter. She had irrevocably sided with her people at the peril of her life. Let me remind you, Esther doesn't know the end of the story. She's already come before the king, knees knocking, though it's against the law, only to have grace extended to her, the king's golden scepter. But her job's not done. There's an, there's an empire-wide edict throughout all 127 provinces of the Persian Empire. Stretching across three continents, all the Jews are to be rounded up and killed on a particular date, which is set on the calendar and sealed with the king's signet ring. And Esther now comes out and says, I'll tell you what I want, king. I'll tell you what I've been longing to ask you up to this point. Would you just let me live? Would you let my people, the Jews, live? Now, as an aside here, we can see once again the tremendous, just mind-boggling power of the king. Did you catch your line there? If, if it would just have merely been us being sold as slaves, like the entire nation, that wouldn't even have been worth bringing up, king. That wouldn't even have been worth bothering you about. This, this guy's got some serious power but but it was more than servitude it was more than shackles more than slavery the jews faced life or death esther says i'm one of them she adds her name to the roster of those who are about to be killed so what's the king's response let's keep reading verse five esther seven beginning in verse five then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and enemy, this wicked Haman. And Haman was terrified before the 
king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. What's the king want to know? Two things. Esther had two requests. The king's got two questions. Who is he and where is he? I want this problem fixed. Who would dare to do such a thing? Keep in mind, the king in his wine-induced rage is oblivious to the fact that he sanctioned this thing by giving Haman the go-ahead, by sealing it with his very own personal touch, his signet ring. This law can't be undone. But Haman, the enemy of the Jews, has now been outed, hasn't he? The king storms out, and Haman says, there's only one thing left for me to do. He can, he can see, he's, he's the closest guy to the king of anyone in the kingdom. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And he knows his only chance is to stay and to beg for his life from Queen Esther. Now, now watch how this begging transpires here in verse 8. Esther 7, 8. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, just as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. He's in desperation. He's pleading with her. He's bowing down, falling down to beg for his life. And the king said, will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. This guy's a goner. He is condemned to die. We'll see just how that works out in a minute. But, but I don't want you to miss what's happening here. Haman is falling down before Esther. I'm like giving you a pregnant pause. Do you understand? He, Haman, the enemy of the Jews, is falling down before Esther. Remember just last chapter... How Haman's wife and his counselors, when they begin to see all of this unravel, that God's unmistakable divine hand is, is working these circumstances, Haman's pagan wife and wicked counselors say, man, you're a goner. You're surely going to fall. Listen now. It's chapter 6, verse 13. You can check me. You're surely going to fall, Haman, before what we saw that wording in the Hebrew was the seed of the Jews. So what's happening here? Well, here Haman is literally falling down before Esther of the Jewish seed, of the Jewish race. I mean, this is, this is the height of irony. Haman, you know, the same Haman who wanted to kill all the Jews, wipe them all out, men, women, children, because one measly Jew failed to bow down to him. That Haman is here himself bowing down before whom? A Jew. And that, friends, is what ends up getting him killed. This is nuts. Let's... Let's read how it goes down. Verse, verse 9. We'll pick up in verse 9 of Esther 7. Then 
Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, a gallows, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house. Fifty cubits high. How high is that now? Seventy-five feet. We've been talking about it. That, the, the ceiling, just for a reference, if you're new to the story, is 22 feet at its peak. So triple it and then some. This is a grotesque wooden stake that would have impaled Mordecai and raised him up above every tree in the area in the ancient Near East so that everyone in the empire can see this is what happens when you mess with Persia. This is what happens when you mess with mighty Haman. Here he is, bowing before the seat of the Jews, and that is what gets him killed. The king has Haman put to death. I, I don't even think I finished reading it. I, I left off. I got excited about 75 feet, didn't I? Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house 50, feet, 50 cubits high, 75 feet. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. And the wrath of the king was abated. So the, the king has Haman put to death. And uh, we know very well how he dies. Or, or should I say, perhaps more accurately, where he dies. He dies. I mean, you can't make this up. He dies on the very same set of gallows he had built. Less than 24 hours beforehand to murder Mordecai the Jew, on, on the pole that he specifically made to showcase this grotesque death for all to see, that pole, that's the pole that he made that he ends up dying on. Translation, Haman ends up building his own grave. It reminds me of what Scripture says elsewhere in Psalm chapter 7. I'll read you just a, a few verses. You can jot this down if you want to return to it later. I apologize, I don't have it on the screen today. Psalm chapter 7, verses 14 to 16. Listen to how the Bible agrees with itself about the wicked and their punishment. Psalm 7, beginning in verse 14. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. He gives birth to lies. Listen, he makes a pit, digging it out and, and falls into the hole he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, on his own skull, his violence descends. Now I've titled this message, needed something to call it. He makes a pit and falls into the hole he made. This is what... God says, is the lot of the wicked. Friends, sooner or later, they will pay for their evil deeds. More on that later. 
All right, we're going to finish out our passage today. We're going to take a quick sneak, pa- uh, excuse me, sneak peek into the first two verses of chapter 8 before we zoom out for some uh, big picture observations, some biblical transferable principles for our lives today. So let's, let's uh, finish out our text for this morning, Esther, uh, beginning in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, what day? The day Haman was hanged. Okay, just making sure we're clear. On that day, the king gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her. And the king, get this, took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman. He's getting whisked out to the gallows. Hey, grab the ring. He takes it off Haman's hand. And gave it to Mordecai. I mean, jaw drops to the floor. The the guy who was about to get killed by Haman is now wearing the king's signet ring. This is nuts. Gave it to Mordecai. And listen, Esther set Mordecai over the house of Haman. So... Not only, friends, does Haman get the death that he had planned for Mordecai, but Mordecai gets all of the power. Mordecai gets the position, the prestige, even the property that had once belonged to Haman. Esther gives him all of Haman's house, all of his possessions. This wildly wealthy man who had stockpiled all of the best of the land of Persia. All of his stuff now belongs to his arch enemy. And we've seen here in verse 2 of chapter 8, and perhaps more precious than all of that, he's got the king's signet ring. Translation, Mordecai is now second in command throughout the whole empire. Now, if you're wondering if that's an exaggeration, you can just flip to the last verse of the book, chapter 10, verse 3, and and it tells you as much. Mordecai ends up being second in rank to the king of the most powerful empire on the planet at the time. I mean, I don't know about you. I've not had a week like that. that. That's a big promotion. I find this very interesting, just as a simple aside. This is now, according to my count, maybe there's more. You can tell me if you've seen another one. This is now, in Scripture, the third time this has happened. The third time that one of the children of Yahweh, the Most High God, has been raised up to the position of second in command over an entire pagan kingdom. You'll remember how Joseph was once in prison in Egypt as a child pretty closely removed from from Abraham, his ancestor. Joseph, one of the twelve sons, is in prison in Egypt and is raised up to second in command. No one's got more power in mighty Egypt than Joseph. Genesis 41, you can go check me. And then, not long before the events that we're reading about here in Esther, you may remember a guy named Daniel, and how Daniel was raised up from exile to second in command 
over all of mighty Babylon, pagan, wicked Babylon. You've got Egypt, and the second guy in charge of this wicked empire is a child of God. You've got Babylon, and the second guy in charge is a child of God. And now here in Esther, we have Persia. The military and economic superpower of its day and now second in command to the king is the child of God, the Jew, Mordecai. The Lord, friends, is not just sovereign over a stretch of land in geographic Israel. The Lord is not just in control over his people. The Lord is not, contrary to the popular phrase, a gentleman who only does what he's been invited to do. God is sovereign over it all. And all things serve him and his purposes. So Esther herself, let's just make sure we're understanding where we are here in the, in the narrative. Esther herself has been spared. And the enemy, that wicked Haman, has now been destroyed. But, but I don't want to relieve all the tension from you. Because we've still got a problem, don't we? I mean, it's a, it's a pretty big problem. Don't forget, the Jews' destruction is still on the books, right? I mean, we'll see how that gets resolved Next week, when we gather again and we work through the rest of chapter 8. But it's time at this point, I think, to come up for air, as we often say, and to think about all that's happened here in this text and to ask ourselves, what can we learn from the wild events that have transpired up to this point in the book of Esther? How can we as the people of God here in 2022 be not just hearers of the word, but doers of it? What do we do about this? Here today, Well, I've got two simple observations, two basic biblical principles I think that we can draw safely out of this text, and then two application points, two things we can do that flow out of those principles. Let's start with the first one. The wicked. Here's the first big idea, I think, I'd like us to highlight from the text. The wicked will eventually, eventually fall into their own pit. Happens sometimes sooner than others. But given enough time, God's justice, friends, will always prevail. Isn't that what Sam just read from Psalm chapter 10? Let me, let me zero in here, Psalm chapter 10, on a portion of that which we just read before diving into Esther 7. Psalm 10, this is verses 13 to 15. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. And, and then later, Psalm 10, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer, call his wickedness to account till you find None. So, what do we do here as we're wading through Esther chapter 7? Well, I just want to remind you that we ought not despair. We've been saying this at uh, several points throughout the book, but, but child of God, don't despair. 
And, child of God, don't envy the wicked. You know, it can be easy to do if you're looking at the short term. But the New Testament instructs us in 1 Timothy 5, verse 24, to be exact, 1 Timothy 5, 24, that the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, while the sins of others trail behind them. Friends, your sin will always find you out. God himself proclaims to every person throughout all of human history this simple principle in the economy of the heavenlies. The wages of sin is death. Always, only, ever. The wages of sin. What, what you get from your sin, what you earn, is, is death. Now some people, like this wicked Haman, taste that death early. In a different kind of way. Some of the wicked will skate comfortably into eternity only to find there that their sin is not worth it. What's this mean for us? Well, I trust that it means at least this, that we, although tempted at times as we look around us and we see the wicked prospering, it's like a sub-theme throughout the book of Psalms, the psalmist crying out to God, God, why do the wicked prosper? I'm trying to follow you and I'm just, man, I'm struggling. I'm seeing these people just disregard you and your ways and man, they look like they've got it great. This is a reminder. Esther 7 is a reminder to us not to trust in the things the world looks to. Again, to borrow elsewhere from Scripture, it reminds us, Esther 7 reminds us not to trust in the things that moth or rust can destroy. That thieves can break in and steal. Friend, if your treasure, if your delight is found here, if you can see it, if you can touch it, if, if it's found here in the temporal realm, then sooner or later... You are in for a sore disappointment. Maybe now. Maybe somewhere on this side of the sun. Maybe later. Maybe in eternity. But if your treasure, if the things that make you tick, if the things that get you up in the morning are the same things that drive the world, we have derailed. Don't store up treasures on this earth. They will let you down. I've been citing often throughout this series the biblical commentator named Ian Duguid. Again, a former Grove City guy, always wanting to give a shout out for Grove City. Um, Duguid says this, Haman's life was built around the pursuit of power and achievement. And he achieved both. To the full extent that was possible within the bounds of the empire. No one more successful than Haman, was there? He had reached the top of his career path. 
No one apart from the emperor himself matched Haman's glory and status. Yet all that he had gained disappeared completely within the space of a few moments, along with his life itself. At the end of his life, what did he, what did Haman have to show for all his striving, for all of his wealth, for all of his recognition? He had gained the whole world and lost his soul. This Haman, I think, is a representation. He, he embodies Jesus' words, his example to us in the parable of the rich fool. You know, how Jesus was telling about this guy in Luke chapter 12 who had more than he needed, but no amount of having stuff could fix this man's biggest need. Let me just read you the words of your king, the words of your savior, Jesus the Christ. Luke 12, beginning in verse 18. He said, I will do this. The, the rich man, because he didn't have enough stuff for his, or his space for all his stuff. I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Your 401k is fine. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, fool this night your soul is required of you in the things you have prepared whose will they be so is the one jesus says who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward god now many of us know this right i mean this is not new information to most of you in this room but let's be honest with one another. How easy can it be to let the things of this world, the cares of this world, the treasures of this world choke out our fruitfulness in the kingdom of God? If that's been you, or perhaps even if that's you right now, let me give you a very encouraging word. Let me remind you of the gospel. Because when we read Esther 7 through the lens of what Jesus Christ has done, our hearts should be exploding with joy. I mean, think about Esther 7 with gospel goggles on. Think about Esther through the lens of the cross. Think about how wicked Haman was impaled on a tree bearing the wrath of the king. Isn't that what we read? For his own wicked deeds. And think about how God tells us that all sin, mine and yours, like Haman's, deserves death. It deserves eternal punishment before a holy and perfect God. But think about the good news, friend. Think about what Jesus came to proclaim. Think about the fact that there would be another man who would be staked on a grotesque wooden pole and lifted up to die. 
But this man, Jesus, was not like Haman. This man was the most high king. This man was the very son of God. The second person of the, of the Trinity. The co-creator of the cosmos. This man who never sinned, but loved you so much, stood in your place and was skewered on a tree and left to die for all to see, for all to mock openly, bearing your punishment and mine. He is so good that he would take upon himself the death that we have justly earned. Friends, this is Christianity. This is what we gather to celebrate every single week. We gather to celebrate the most wicked, tragic, unjust moment in all of human history. Never was there a darker time than when the only perfect, innocent human being who has ever lived would be tortured and mocked and killed. Never greater injustice than this. And friends, this most unjust of all acts is now the most beautiful, the most redemptive, the most life-giving act that has ever happened or ever will happen in the history of the human race, the history of creation. Haman died for his sin. And Jesus, if you'll follow him, Friend, Jesus died for yours so that you wouldn't have to. Don't die for your own sin. Don't die for your own folly, for your own rebellion against Most High God like Haman. We're here at Friendship Community Church because we have the blessed invitation, the incalculable blessing to trust in Jesus to look to Jesus and live. All right. Second observation that I think we see here as we look at the events of Esther 7 unfolding, and it's, it's this, simply stated, God chooses. God chooses. Last week, we talked a lot about God's sovereignty we saw how he was sovereign he rules over both the big stuff and the little stuff and today we're going to consider as we bring this to a close another dimension of God's sovereignty namely God is sovereign over you consider Esther before King Ahasuerus ever chose beautiful Esther for his queen. Almighty God chose Esther for his purposes. 
And what are the chances that an orphaned, exiled Jewish girl would be elevated to be queen of the empire? What are the chances that, that of the, the 400 girls across all of this vast domain, the biggest beauty pageant like ever, this one would be selected just happenstance to be in this place, in this time, to work salvation for God's people. Friends, before the king chose Esther, God chose Esther. He is sovereign. And as Mordecai had, had posited, when they're on pins and needles, wondering if they're going to live to see the year change round again, he said, perhaps, Esther, perhaps you're here for such a time as this. Newsflash. It was God who made Esther beautiful. Well, sure, she, man, she went through some pretty aggressive beauty treatments, right? I mean, she's been a year with all kinds of ointments and treatments, and I don't even care to think any more about that. But who gave Esther those eyes? Who drew her jawline just so? Who made her beautiful what what choice did she have in her genetic makeup who determined when she would be born and and where she would live whose hand did that well friends the whole counsel of god's word screams at us it's God. It's God. Listen, God did not just make Esther beautiful for her own enjoyment. He didn't just make Esther beautiful for her own elevation in the kingdom. He was using, was he not? He was using her good looks for the good of his people, for his redemptive purposes. And friends, nothing's changed today. God chooses your gifts, your situation. They're not just your traits. They're not just your things. They were given to you. What do you have, Paul writes to the Corinthians, that you did not receive? What do you have that wasn't given to you? Given to you for God's glory. For God's greater story. The psalmist says it this way. I love this verse. We say it often. We cite it often around here. Out of Psalm 139. Writing of the, the beauty and the mastery of life. And God's grand design. The psalmist, psalmist says. All the days ordained for me. What's ordained mean? Given. You don't have any days other than the ones that have been given to you. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. That's Psalm 139, 16. Our gifts, Christians, have been given to us 
so that we would use them for the advancement of God's purposes, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's Ephesians 4.12. Let me just be very plain. God has strategically placed you where you work, where you live. God has wired you the way that you are. He has strategically given you the gifts and the resources, the family, the station that you are in. And he's done it, not so you'd spend it on yourself. Not so that you would try to maximize what you've been given for your own personal gain. He's done it for his greater purposes. To use the language of Esther, perhaps, just perhaps, God has placed you right here, right now, for such a time as this. Last thing. What do we do about this? Last, well, last thing. Please don't forget to extend this truth of God's sovereignty And the priority of aligning your life behind his greater purposes. Don't forget to extend that truth to your loved ones as well. You know, some of us have an easier time surrendering ourselves to God than we do our children. Than we do our spouse, our loved ones, those who are knit into our hearts and I mean, come on, let's just tell it like it is. Look around, it can be easy to despair today, can it? I want to challenge you, friends, not to lament as you think about your children, as you think about your grandchildren, as you think about your life and what it is compared to maybe what life was like in the good old days. I want to challenge you not to lament that they were born at an inopportune time. Like Esther, like Daniel, like so many who have gone before us. Those great cloud of witnesses. All the days ordained for them were written in his book before one of them came to be. Some of you may have seen a uh, viral social media post that just took the internet by storm on several different social media platforms. It was posted by a youth pastor down in Arkansas, and, uh, and it hit a vein. Over 59,000 shares not to mention the likes, the comments. What this youth pastor have to say? Well, I'll borrow just a few excerpts. I'm not gonna. I don't know this guy. I'm not. I'm not recommending his his the whole corpus of his theology to you. I'm just gonna read you a few excerpts of one thing he said. Alex Cravens said, "Don't feel sorry or fear for your kids because the world they're going to grow up in is not what it used to be." God created them and called them for the exact moment of time they're in. 
Their life is not a coincidence or an accident. Every person in all of history has been placed there because of God's sovereign plan. And he created them specifically for it. Don't be scared for your children. They were born for such a time as this. Friends, we were all born according to God's sovereign plan. None of this is an accident. You sitting here at the corner of the road in Warwick Avenue on October 23rd, 2022 is not an accident. I don't see that word in this book. Seek the Lord while he may still be found. There is no higher joy. There is no more noble pursuit than to walk with Jesus and to spend your life, to give your resources and your time and your gifts for the advancement of a purpose far greater than your own. As the hymn writer reminds us, we can lean on his Everlasting arms. They never tire. They never fail. So let's pray with these truths in view. And then we'll sing that song. Lord, we thank you. As we continue working our way through this remarkable book. That you showed your sovereign hand. Through the big things and the little things. That you have in the past. You are now and you will forever work all things. Everything for your own glory and for the good of your people. God, we, we believe it. We pray forgive us for the ways in which we lose sight. God, forgive us when, when our eyes just glaze over. And the things of the world captivate our interests. Forgive us, Father, when we... When we get out of alignment and we pray here, yes, Father, here at Friendship Community Church, that you would begin to raise up a people. Men, women, and children who get this, who get that you are God, and who run, run with confidence the race set before us. Who trust that you who began this good work in us will carry it through to completion. Help us, God, here at FCC. Lean on your everlasting arms. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.